Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Robert Glover. He's a therapist, coach, and an author. Being nice is something many of us aspire to become. After all, who doesn't want to be nice? Well, nice guy syndrome has been ruining the lives of many men for decades, so perhaps we should aspire to be something else. Expect to learn what is actually wrong with being a nice guy, why men become so afraid of putting their needs first, how to stop people pleasing, why nice guys end up being bitter and resentful, whether nice guys actually attract or repel women, and much more. God, I fell in love with this man on this episode. He is so cool and balanced and insightful and supportive. And uh, just, I really love this vibe. He 100% will be coming back on the show. He's a legend. No More Mr. Nice Guy. His book is like an absolutely legendary men's work slash psychology inner exploration tome. And uh, God, he's, he's just so incisive. Really, really cool. Uh, the people that this episode is for and the partners of the people or the, the sisters or the, the wives of the people as well, um, it is very, very impressive. I, I really think you're going to take tons away from today. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Really, really hope that you enjoy this one. You might have heard me say that I took my testosterone level from 495 to 1006 last year, and two of the supplements I used throughout that were Fadogia Agrestis and Tonkat Ali. I first heard Dr. Andrew Human talk about these really impressive effects that tons of research was showing, which sounds great until you realize that most supplements don't actually contain what they're advertising. Momentus make the only NSF-certified Fadogia Agrestis and Tonkat Ali on the planet. That means that they're tested so rigorously that even Olympic athletes can use it, and that is why I partnered with them, because they make the most carefully tested, highest quality supplements on earth. Dr. Andrew Huberman is actually the scientific advisor for Momentus, so if you've ever wondered what supplements he would create, if he could, or what he really uses himself, this is the answer. So if you're not performing in the gym or the bedroom the way that you want, or you just want to improve your testosterone naturally, Fadoji Agrestis and Tonkat Ali are the best, most researched back place to start. Best of all, there is a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it completely risk-free, use it, and if you do not like it for any reason, they will give you your money back. Plus, they ship internationally. Right now, you can get 20% off everything site-wide with the code MODERNWISDOM by going to livemomentous.com slash Modern Wisdom to see all the products I use and recommend. That's live, M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash Modern Wisdom and Modern Wisdom. A checkout. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. It is the best ball and body hair trimmer ever created. It's got a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, a 90 minute battery so that you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology which allows you to groom in the shower, and an LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim or if you're just a particularly crevicey human. They've also got a 7000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology and a wireless charging system that helps the battery to last even longer. So if you or the man in your life is hairier than you would like them to be, this is a fantastic gift to get yourself or someone else. Head to manscaped.com slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping worldwide. That's manscaped.com slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Gymshark. The best gymwear on the planet is from Gymshark. So no matter what you are looking for, if you are spending more time in the gym, you will feel better if you've got cool new clothing. And Gymshark make the best men's shorts 
on the planet. They're studio shorts in dusty maroon, willow green, onyx gray, and navy were what I wore throughout all of my trip to LA, which you may have seen on YouTube recently. Their crest hoodie is what I am flying in whenever I'm on a flight, and their Geo Seamless t-shirt is also what I train in every single day. All of their kit is unbelievably lightweight, sweat wicking, it's easy to wash and dry. I'm in love and the fit and quality of their fabrics are phenomenal. Plus, there is a 30-day free returns internationally and you can get 10% off everything site-wide and worldwide. If you go to bit.ly slash sharkwisdom and use the code MW10 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash sharkwisdom and MW10 at checkout. But now, ladies... And gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Robert Glover. What's wrong with being a nice guy? What's wrong with being a nice guy? That's a, that's a good question. You know what I put out a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. I'm sure a lot of people picked it up. Wait a minute. There's already enough not nice guys out there. Why somebody write a book teaching men how to be not nice? The, the problem with being a nice guy, just a quick elevator pitch, is, is that a nice guy is a guy who inaccurately internalized a belief system at a very young age. I'm not okay, just as I am. So he's trying to do two things, very unconsciously usually. One is become what he thinks Everybody else wants him to be, so he'll be liked and loved and get his needs met and get laid, hopefully, uh, regularly, and hide anything about himself that might get a negative reaction from people, uh, hiding his needs, his wants, his sexuality. So while he's trying to get laid, he's hiding his sexuality. Um, so a core problem with nice guy syndrome is nice guys tend to be un, uh, unauthentic. Uh, they're, they're, there's not a real them there. They're trying to become something, hide something, and uh, that tends to make them fairly dishonest, untrustworthy, frustrated, resentful, passive-aggressive, uh, uh, a whole list of traits that can go along. And, and mainly, it prevents, and I'm a recovering nice guy, so I'm not speaking down to anybody. You know, it keeps us from just being ourselves, living up to our, our full potential, having what we want in life, having a good time. And so just a lot of baggage comes along with it. What are the component parts of being a nice guy? What are the traits that they embody or project? Where you, what you'll recognize most often and what listeners may recognize in themselves, uh, core tendencies often people-pleasing, seeking external validation. And, and for men, usually that's seeking validation from women. Even, even gay guys, I find, tend to do it. Uh, even if they don't plan on having sex with the women, they, we're, we're, we can talk more about this, but we're, we're, we've learned from birth to please women. So there's that people pleasing, that external validation, um, failing to live up to one's full potential, a basic core dishonesty, you know, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm pretty honest. I, I always laugh when men tell me they're pretty honest. I say that's actually a contradiction of terms. Um, you're honest or you're not. Um, and, um, and just, you know, for most nice guys, there's just a certain dull depression that they live with. Just thinking, you know, I should be happy. I should be getting what I want. I should be getting love. I, I should, I should but I'm not, and I don't know why not. And so there's, there's a lot of the characteristics, but the, the core piece you'll see the most often is that 
people-pleasing, that seeking of external validation. Who is the prototypical nice guy avatar? Like, just describe him for me. (laughs) Oh, he's, you know, he's just just that guy that's, you know, walking through life, trying to make everybody happy, trying not to do anything wrong, don't want to fuck anything up, doesn't want to piss anybody off, uh, goes along to get along. You know, we've heard that, you know, happy wife, happy life. If I just make everybody happy, everything's good. Uh, I, I have a course that I've taught for a number of years called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last. They rot in middle management. So he's good at being good. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't excel. He doesn't stand out. Because standing out is actually really scary for nice guys. Uh, it's too much attention. It's too much expectation. Um, so, you know, when I started working with nice guys 30 years ago, um, most of the men I worked with, you know, probably were around my age. I was in my early thirties at that time. And, um, so it was a lot of baby, uh, baby boom generation guys, you know, they, they were trying to be different than their fathers, the world war two, you know, men, uh, they were in that protest generation against Vietnam, growing their hair out, getting in touch with their feminine side. And, and so a lot of the men I worked with, you know, kind of grew up in that era, but I've been doing this for a while. And so, you know, my son's 38, for example. So, you know, I, I work with millennials, millennials, men younger than that. And what's funny is, whereas my generation, a lot of the men uh, kind of attribute part of their nice guy stuff to, well, my dad wasn't there or, you know, my parents divorced or, you know, he worked all the time or he's an alcoholic. Nowadays, I hear a lot of men say, oh, my dad was a nice guy. And, and about all he taught me about life was don't piss off your mother. And and because he was walking around eggshells trying not to piss off my mother. So, you know, I, I've seen that whole range all the way from the guys that were reacting to, you know, the the the, the asshole um, patriarchal father to now the guys that were raised by nice guys and they don't know any other way of being. It's like one generation had the tyrant and the other generation had the compliant. That's and- a good way to put it. That's nice. Yeah. The tyrant, uh, the compliant. Yeah, it was. Um, but it, here's the interesting thing, right? And it, it's so fascinating that you had one generation that was rebelling in their niceness, even yes. if that niceness isn't that nice. Yeah. yeah. And then another generation that was following in their niceness. So there seems to be a particular stickiness to niceness. If tyrants that are emotionally unavailable and not nice are able to create nice guys, and nice fathers are also we're, we're in big trouble. We're yeah. so what's why is it so prevalent? What is what is this pull? Are we as men? Are we inculcating or absorbing something from the world? Is this the way that we were raised by mum and dad? Is the what's the gen? What's the origin? What's the genesis? Yeah. The seed of this? Well, that's a good question, of course, and of course, what every nice guy wants. Well, how did I get to be this way? You know, who and, cursed me with this? Yeah, I I quickly learned when I started working with nice guys again 30 years ago that there is no one, you know, one size fit all how you, how you got to be a nice guy. I, I thought there was at first. I thought they were all like me, you know, uh, disconnected from their father in some significant way, uh, you know, significantly raised by their mother, trying to please their mom. And and and, uh, and I thought, well, that, that explains it all. But it didn't. And um there's so many pieces that go into it. A lot of men I work with that identify as being nice guys, I think part of it's their temperament. 
part of it is just they're easygoing. You know, my, my, my mother uh, would often say in adulthood to women I was dating, oh, Bobby never did like conflict. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, thanks, Mom. You know, what are you telling these women? Be nice to my son. Don't be mean to him. But I'm also thinking, who does like conflict? You know, I, I do tend to marry women who like to fight, but I, for me, it's kind of like, you know, can't, 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 you know, instead of us, you, you doing something that starts a fight, I say to them, can't I just yell at you a little bit? You cry and then I hold you. Isn't that really what, you know, this is all about anyway? And my wife will always say, no, it, it doesn't count unless you're really mad at me. Um, so I, I don't like conflict in particular. So that's my temperament. So I'm, yeah, so I'm, there's I'm a, little a disposition bit that many of the nice guys will have the raw materials of someone that's a little Part bit of my nature. Averse, averse. Yeah. Yep, Part yep. of my nature. But but that's just kind of one category of nice guy. Mm -hmm. The other one that, that I bumped into, I call often those the I'm so good nice guy. He's the guy that just always did everything right no matter what, you know. But the other side I talk about in No More Mr. Nice Guy is what I call the I'm so bad nice guy. This is the one that you know, maybe started rebelling at an early age, maybe had ADHD undiagnosed, you know, he's always impulsive, getting in trouble, you know, not following through, getting yelled at, getting punished, starts doing drugs and alcohol at 14, you know, drops out of school. And then maybe at some point has a, a come to Jesus moment, religion, military, gets married as a kid, death in the family. He goes, I got, I, I got to quit, you know, self-destructing. I, I got to, I got to be nicer. So there's that kind of nice guy as well. So it's a different temperament than, than, the, than the other. One of the pieces, you know, there's so many pieces that go into this, but to answer your question, how do we, what's the stickiness part? Again, I think a real core piece that I see with so many nice guys is this attempt to, to please women. And I, I was talking to somebody the other day. It, it, it makes perfect sense because if you think about it, we're all born to a woman. Our earliest caregiver, if it's not mom, it's probably some other woman. So from the time we're born, our very survival, our sustenance, our okayness depends on a woman and probably us getting along with that woman. That's probably a good thing, right? And so that's really normal that the, our first experiences are how, how, to, how to negotiate a relationship with a woman to make that big, powerful, holds our, our life in her hands uh, person, how to make sure that's okay. And I don't know about in the UK, but when I was growing up uh, in Seattle, I had one male teacher before I got to junior high. There's four times more female fighter pilots in the US Air Force by percentage than there are male kindergarten teachers. There you go. You've done your research. So, so I had one teacher. So that means just to learn how to get from second to third grade, not only had to learn my reading, writing, and arithmetic, but how to please a woman. Okay. All of that's fine. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I think that's actually probably the way it's always been. But historically, I mean, if we go back even two or three generations, but if you go through most of human history, at about age 12, the men came into the boy's life, took him you know, from the women, took him out, had a masculine initiation, taught him how to get comfortable being uncomfortable, how to face his fear, how to live in the scary world of the masculine, and therefore and spent most of his time from them on out with men in the masculine. And, and so he got, he moved through that, what do I have to do to please a woman? So I think that's a really normal thing that to, to try to please women, the survival for, for every young boy. But what's, what's missing is there's no initiation 
to teach them how to, how to go face their fears in the scary world of the masculine and quit seeking the approval and validation of women. Because there's this really interesting paradox that I, I took me years to find out, and you know, a lot of men I work with takes you know, it's it's a big surprise. Is oh, pursuing women and trying to please them doesn't make them interested in you. It doesn't make them like you. It doesn't make them want to have sex with you. No, it, it actually doesn't. Actually, not trying to please women tends to make a guy more interesting to women in general. And that's a big paradox to a lot of the men I work with. And it, it was for me. You mean, I mean, all this, I'd, me listening to them talk about their problems, me trying to be different than the jerks they complain about, me repressing my sexuality. So it's not like I just want that one thing from them. All that doesn't make them interested in me. No, it doesn't actually. But they do seem to be drawn and attracted to the guy who's comfortable in his own skin, living a life, you know, on his terms, connected with men, uh, putting a big dent in the universe. That is really attractive. But there's no, no, how do I get this woman's approval involved in that whole mix? What are the covert contracts? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. That's, um, that's my favorite part of No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I know uh, many men read it and say, Robert, that is the biggest takeaway. The covert contracts are unspoken, often unconscious agreements that the nice guy has with everything that's not him, with the world, with God, with women, you know, which is how things work. And in the book, I, 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 I'm a little bit general, but I, I've broken it down to three specific covert contracts that nice guys have. They're all if then, uh, if I do this, then this will happen. They, they all uh, are basically manipulative. They all have strings attached. And often the nice guy isn't aware of them and nobody else is either. So covert contract number one, if I'm a good guy, I will be liked and loved and get my, and, and going back to, and, and the women I'm trying to impress will want to be with me and have sex with me. So if I'm good, I'll be liked and loved. Number two, if I meet everybody else's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, Unfortunately, nobody else knows this contract exists, so they don't know. They're supposed to be reading our minds and figure out what we want, like we're trying to do for them. Another core problem with this is that nice guys are actually really terrible receivers. We're not good at letting people do for us. We're not good at giving to ourselves. So that's covert contract number two. Covert contract number three is if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free world. So it's kind of a Peter Panish kind of thing. You know, I, I, I do everything right. I'm a, I'm a good guy. But unfortunately, we're, we're, we're the player, the referee, the scorekeeper. And we got the big scoreboard. Hey, I've done everything right. How come this stuff still isn't going the way it's supposed to go in my life? So nice guys are walking around these covert contracts. And, and you ask, you know, what are, what, 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 what's the core characteristic of a nice guy? One of them is, is that they're often really resentful. You know, they might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bugged or I'm kind of frustrated, but they're really resentful and often rageful because I've been doing this. I've been doing it right. I've been following the rules. I've been, you know, being the good guy. I've been meeting your needs. I've been, you know, following all the rules. You know, how come I'm, when's it my turn? How come I'm not getting all the, all the stuff that I thought I would? And that leads to a lot of resentments. And, that, and that's one way I can tell, I tell nice guys, they go, well, how do I know if I'm, if I'm using covert contracts? And I go, You'll know because you're walking around resentful and pissed off, either because you didn't get back in turn or you didn't get appreciated for, for all that, that you did. I, 
I heard somebody share a quote the other day that I really liked. To me, is another really nice way of putting covert contracts. And this, I guess, was from Neil Strauss. And he says, Un, um, unspoken expectations. expectations are premeditated resentment. Isn't that 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 is what happens Phenomenal. with covert contracts? Phenomenal by him. Yeah, that. So the frustration and the resentfulness that's coming from offering to the world something that you think should be universally liked. You have there is there's no way that anybody could be offended by what I'm doing. I'm following the rules. I'm offering the world lots whilst asking for nothing in return. Yep. And the fact that not asking for something in return results in you getting nothing in return. Funny how that works. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it's. It, I suppose this as well plays into the dishonesty bit. And it's so, I, I understand. I would say that I'm, I'm very much in nice guy category, um, very much a people pleaser. Uh, my temperament is to be averse to conflict as well. Um, I've made a dent in many ways, but it's been done it's been done by weaving my way th through avoiding much of the the conflict uh, that that I would maybe need to. Um, so I suppose I can be at least in some regards a uh, a paragon or, or like a, a a role model for the successful nice guy in okay. in many ways, well, and and me too. You know, yeah. again, I don't like conflict, but you know, I you know, I'm I'm doing okay. There's yeah. something I always felt. I always felt the fact that I wasn't like my my go to isn't typically uh, aggression. That's not what I lean into. Um, despite the fact I've got a background of fighting and and doing other things and, and physical training and stuff like that. I always felt like it emasculated me, the fact that th there was something more heroic about being someone that was quick to anger. You know, there was something kind of typically masculine about that. And I think I was mm, not strong enough to say ashamed, but it felt, it, it didn't feel as grand to be someone who would be, I know that there's nobility in, you know, being under control, having your emotions under yeah. control. Um, but there's also a degree of fragility, I think, that you can sometimes feel with that also. Well, let me give a one way to, to maybe look at the model and, and see if it fits what you're saying. Is that when I was writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, I really focused a lot on shame being a core foundation of nice guy syndrome, that internalized belief, I'm not okay, and inaccurately internalized belief from our earliest life experience, a few weeks old, a few, few months old. By the time I finished writing the book and it was, you know, uh, getting ready to be published, I'd, I'd, by that time, I'd really come to also see that anxiety plays maybe an equally significant role uh, in nice guy syndrome. So where everything that nice guys are doing is trying to manage that sense of shame. I'm not okay. I'm unlovable. I'm defective. And their anxiety states. You know, I might piss somebody off. I might get rejected. I might get hurt. I might lose. I might look foolish. So, you know, both of those states really play into it. And one of the things I've come to see is, is that whether we've got, just to kind of break it down, whether we've got kind of the asshole jerk over here, that fighter, that quick-to-fight guy, or the wussy doormat, you know, the nice guy over here that's the avoidant and, and kind of doesn't like the conflict, I think they're, they're both on the, the same continuum. 
I think they are both in a fight, flight, freeze mode of managing their inner states of anxiety. The nice guy is in the, the flight, freeze, fawn, sometimes added to that list. Mm. And what we'd call the jerk is in the fight mode. Now, they're both still just trying to manipulate people in situations outside of them because they're anxious. The nice guy does it by being nice and avoidant and not upsetting anybody and, you know, waiting for it to blow over, you know, all that kind of, whereas, you know, the guy, the other end of the spectrum is, is just, he's just quick to react with aggression to manage the people and situations around him. So, so he doesn't feel afraid and anxious. And so men will often, you know, they'll read my book or, you know, they'll hear some of my information and they'll say, Robert, I get that being a nice guy isn't working and I don't want to be that, but I don't want to be the asshole either. And, you know, where, where's that middle ground? And, and I go, I actually don't know where the tipping point is between two dysfunctional extremes. It doesn't exist, right? What, what we're actually talking about is, is going to a different plane, a different level, where we actually learn to soothe ourselves, where we actually learn to be assertive, where we actually learn to have boundaries, where we actually learn to be differentiated and ask ourselves, what do I want and follow through on it? Where there's, you know, there's a whole different plane of behavior versus just what do I do to not feel anxious here? But again, the nice guy and the jerk probably neither one is aware that they're trying to manage their anxiety states. And and it isn't until you actually get told that maybe that's what you're doing. You go, oh, wow, I never thought about that before. And then then you actually can feel your anxiety rather than trying to just manage it to where it doesn't, you know, make you feel so anxious. Is it a desire to feel safe then, to feel sure. reassured? Yeah, I, I think, you know, safety is at the core because, when I took child development 101 back in grad school, I think the very first thing they told us, one of the few things maybe I remembered, was that for every child, abandonment equals death. So children come into the world inherently vulnerable, right? There's no one to take care of us. It takes humans longer to mature into self-sufficiency than any other animal on the planet. You know, our grandfathers, maybe that was about 12 or 14. You know, uh, my age is more, you know, considered 18, 21, 22. Now it's like 35 for a young man to, you know, mature, to be able to take care of himself. Uh, that's a joke. Um, but, but it's true. So we're dependent, completely dependent. And if somebody doesn't take care of us, we die. So if we get abandoned, neglected, uh, we die. So I know for me, like if, when my wife, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, my wife Lupita and I have been married for seven years now, Mexican woman I met here in Mexico. And um, she gets a look on her face. And like, I'll go into, you know, this motive. I got I to fix it. She's upset. She's angry. I got to make it better. And, you know, I've been working on this stuff for 30 years. So, you know, it's not like I don't know, you know, what's happening. And I'll just watch myself have this anxiety state that I got to, I got to talk her down through over, get her back to good, you know, make her happy again. And I'm thinking, why am I worried about what this short little Mexican woman, why, what look she has on her face? I, I love her, of course. But why, why is that triggering such depth of anxiety? And really, as I really sat with it and worked with it, it triggers a really old emotional state that does feel like I'm going to die. If this doesn't get better right now, I'm going to die. And I, I don't actually have that thought in my head. But m my reaction to it feels that intense. That's the embodied sensation. If you that's were to the dig. embodied, the nervous system, my emotional operating system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder, stepping outside of relationships for a second, or relationships with anybody, including friendships. One of the patterns that I've noticed, especially amongst some of my friends that are nice guys or recovering nice guys, <clears throat> is a desire to do things right. 
Of course. To like a, a task in and of itself. Uh, I would guess that nice guys are probably more orderly than the normal person. Sources will be stacked in the in the right way. You know, mustn't it, have a, it a dirty room. Because again, you'd think that you'd think that okay, I got to do it right. I got to get orderly. But you know, I've got my camera angled where you can't see what's over on the sides. All right, it's it's, 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 it's a mess. It is is not terrible, but um, it, it it is messier on the sides than it is behind me. Okay, and, and so again, a, a lot of the nice guys I work with, they may have perfectionistic expectations of themselves, um, and some work really hard. To, to to meet them and then they're they're in a state of anxiety all the time but others i know they go you know, i haven't made my bed in years I, you know i don't pick up after myself i can't remember the last time i, I checked my bank account balance mm -hmm. so you'd think there would be that but but ironically um there's not and, and here's a piece that that it may sound odd on on the surface of it but when i talk with nice guys about their fears and their anxieties i think one of the biggest anxiety or fear state that, that, that the typical nice guy might have isn't so much a fear of failure, fear of foolishness, fear of looking foolish, fear of loss, fear of making a mistake. It's fear of success. Because what happens if I do get it right? What happens if I rise up to a level of success? And then, you know, there's things that can happen. All of a sudden, the bar gets raised. The expectations are higher. I'm in a brighter spotlight. I might get attacked. I'm more visible. Um, there, there's so many, th I, I'll lose control over my time. All of these built-in anxieties of what happens if I'm too successful. So again, a lot of times the nice guys will unconsciously, I don't really like the word self-sabotage, but they'll get in their own way of living up to, to their full potential and keeping things messy around you is actually a pretty good way to, you know, you know, not live up to your full potential, not checking your bank account every now and then, you know, that'll bite you on the ass sooner or later. Isn't it isn't it interesting that the almost universality of high ability of dishonest do you want to uh do you need to sort the dog? <laughs> this is a regular occurrence, I can see. <laughs> she's usually in the room with me and and she's a deer. This is my Bring pet. her in, she can chill. Yeah, the problem is she's upset because somebody's out front, and I'm the only one home, and I don't want to go deal with whoever might be out. Front. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it, fine. It, it could just be my wife getting home with my daughter from school. It, okay, it could be. okay, okay. So, um, yeah, she's just being a good girl. Let yeah, me know yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 Poppy, yeah. there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there. Let's go. Let's go. And it may have been she just saw a cat. So you know, wow. I, I I don't know. So be it. Um. She walked it, away, so <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. She's just bored of you now. Yeah. It's interesting that there is uh, this almost universality of uh, not having healthy boundaries, yeah. of being dishonest, of being manipulative, although you don't think that you are. You're, you're overly pliable in a way that means that you change yourself to get the outcome that you want from people. But it seems, at least based on what you've said here, that there, there appears to be a boundary, at least typically among the nice guys, where this doesn't, outside of relationships, friendships, family, dating, etc., this doesn't spread out into a uh, overbearing desire for for orderliness and and sort of perfectionism in all areas of life. You know, with regards to a, an obsession about getting it right, about being everything well, it, it being neat and tidy. It and can. Stuff. I, I just what I'm trying to say is, it's not 
universal. universal. Yeah. It's whereas the 100%. other stuff, whereas the other stuff is, yeah. But it's what it shows, or at least what it says to me, is that there's something. It's it's obvious that ground zero for this stuff is relationships. You know that that would have been my first thought as well because it is for me and it is for many nice guys. But you know what? I've I've seen guys who are total nice guys in relationship, and they get on the job and they kick ass. You know, they're, they're highly successful at work. I've known other people that it showed up, you know, uh, at work where they're a total nice guy and going along to getting along and never really stepping up or never launching, you know, that, that business. And, and, but at home, you know, their, their wife would say, he's not a nice guy. He's nice to everybody else, but he's not nice to me. So it, it, it can be interesting. And, and that would, again, when I started working with nice guys, I just assume there's a one piece fits all. And, and there's really not. Now, there are those certain commonalities, but I think partly because we're also dealing with temperament that, for example, maybe you and I had very different life experiences. Maybe we have some similarities of temperament, some differences, different life experiences. We're not going to turn out just the same. We may still have those tendencies of, you know, seeking approval, avoiding conflict, you know kind of a, uh, oh, you know, I'm so good. Why doesn't everybody like me? And everybody try to be just like me. Um, th there might be some similarities, but we might be very different and still relate to this as, yes, I'm a nice guy. Understood. What about hidden behavior? They keep things hidden from themselves. They keep things hidden from everybody else. <laughs> Why is that so common? Why is it common? Because, you know, those two things, when, you know, when we first started, you asked me, you know, what, what is the nice guy? And basically, and, and I said, he's the guy trying to get everybody's approval and validation, you know, holding your finger up, which way is the wind blowing? But the other piece is that hiding things about ourselves, you know, hiding anything, for example, that might get that look on my wife's face, you know, oh, she got that look. I must have done something. I better not do that again. And again, that began at a very, very early age when getting that look from somebody important to us might result in getting slapped, getting smacked, getting neglected, getting yelled at, getting shaken, whatever. So nice guys is just part of that. I got to hide whatever there is about me that tends to create these negative reactions around me. But often there's another piece, not again, not universal, but often for nice guys in their family system, somebody has been defined as the needy person, the most important person. Could be dad, could be mom, could be a sibling, and their needs were more important. All the attention and focus went on, you know, making sure dad never got pissed off, making sure mom didn't go on a tirade, making sure, you know, brother doesn't, you know, whatever, you know, he's sick or he's, he's out of control. Or, or, so often for nice guys, we, we try to become this needless, wantless, never rock the boat, never be a moment's problem kind of person. So what we interpret is us having needs draws too much attention and, and, you know, my, their needs are more important than mine. And so nice guys, we're again, trying to avoid that negative reaction. The two things we often most hide are our needs and our wants and our sexuality. You know, the sexuality, that's kind of easy to, to put a finger on. You know, we, we live in a culture that we're bombarded with sexual stimuli everywhere you go, but still, there's still that, you know, that, religious message that sex is bad, evil, save it for the one you love. That's shame. Yeah, just the whole shame wrapped around sexuality. You'd think that would have gone away by now, but but it's not. It's as strong as ever. So for the 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 very young nice guy, when kind of kind of back up a little bit back to the to the child development one oh one stuff again. 
every child, when they experience discomfort of any kind, you know, they're hungry and they don't get fed. They're, they're, they wet their diaper, they mess in their diaper, they don't get changed. They're cold, they don't get held. They, you know, they have a stomach ache, they don't get burped, whatever. Whenever a child experiences discomfort, their children are narcissistic by nature. Emotionally, they assume this is me. I, I, I'm the cause of this. I did something wrong. I'm bad. They don't think it because the thinking brain isn't online at this early age. The emotional brain, fight, flight, free, survival brain is. And so a child will try to do two things in a very primitive way, a non-thinking, non-rational, purely emotional way. They will try to medicate the feeling states they're having, suck their thumb, eat, cry, sleep, smile, whatever to try to not feel bad right now. And again, in a very pre, very primitive, pre-verbal kind of way, try to do, try to not do whatever that was that caused the uncomfortable states or do something different. And so that begins at a really early age. And so the child is, these, these, the shame is, is inaccurately internalized at an emotional level. I must have done something wrong. That's why this is happening. So I got to figure out how to do that different or not do that. Hide. And so all of this comes so early as part of an emotional language, an emotional operating system. It's not in words. It's not in picture memory. And it's, it's primitive. So here we are trying to figure out how not to have these uncomfortable experiences and prevent them from happening again. And one of the best things our primitive brain came up with is hide, hide, you know, what, whatever that I have needs. Oh, I have needs. I, I get, I'm, I'm hungry when I have needs, I get slapped. Oh, their needs are more important than mine. So just hiding is part of that because we think it must be about me that's causing these painful negative experiences to be happening to us. Does this mean that nice guys often have coping strategies? Maybe they'll overeat. Maybe they'll be compulsive with social media use or porn or video games or substances or whatever. The thing about that model I just gave you, that child development model, every human does that. Every human. We all just pick, usually, again, based on temperament and maybe just life experiences and birth order, we all pick what are we going to do? How are we going to try to manage this? And I sucked my thumb till I was in kindergarten. I think maybe I was trying to deal with some uncomfortable Self-soothing. Self-soothing, exactly. Trying to manage some anxiety there. So that's what I did. Now, we, we go through childhood, then we hit adolescence, and now where we really want people's approval and want to fit in and be noticed and have attention, all of this really you know, gets uh, fueled with, with, with uh, our hormones and need for attention. Where, you know, then it really gets solidified and we pretty much carry these routines into adulthood. So, yeah, trying to be perfect might be one, you know, trying not to be perfect because my brother was perfect and I couldn't, you know, compete with him. So I'll be the opposite. I'll, I'll, I'll make the mess. Um, yeah, when I eat, I sure do feel better. When I spend all my day and night playing video games, I, I don't feel stressed. When I'm, oh, isn't porn amazing? I didn't know that this existed. Look how I feel. Um, oh, you know, if I get straight A's, look, I, I finally get some validation, but I don't know if it's ever enough. I better keep, you know, succeeding, performing, you know, oh, I better get into great, amazing shape so I can be valuable. Oh, I'll never get in good shape. So who cares? I'll just keep eating. It can take so many different forms. And the only real logic to it is the, the infant logic that you and I and everybody else had 
at a few weeks and a few months old. Why are nice guys bad receivers? Because <laughs> we think it makes us bad. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, is that, as I said, most of us is, is most nice guys internalize this belief. Well, I, because I have needs, that's why I, I have these bad things that happen to me. If I don't have needs, bad things won't happen. And often again, they, I, I could, I could look around in my family. Oh, dad's needs are more important. Well, let's all make sure dad's okay. Oh, now mom's unhappy. Let's all make sure mom's okay. My little brother was a general fuck up at pretty much everything. Oh, okay. You know, we got to make sure little brother's okay because he's going to fuck up. And I kind of like, oh, if I don't have needs, if I just kind of do everything right, I'll be the golden child. I'll get some validation. You know, I, I, I won't get noticed too much and get in trouble. And, and so, again, that was my story. It's not every nice guy's story. But there's some fundamental piece in there that if, if it's visible, if people know I have needs, like that makes me vulnerable, it puts me at risk, it gives people control over me, I'll owe people something. So in my own personal work, one of the earliest things I had to start doing was, was making me a priority where I put, where I did for me, I, I, I'd do for everybody else, but I, I wouldn't make me a priority. And, you know, I'd, I'd make sure, you know, my wife and kids, they all went to the dentist. I wouldn't go to the dentist. I, oh, they, you know, if I saw something on sale, I'd buy it for them. But I wouldn't buy it for me. So I had to start taking good care of me. The next step that, that kind of came with that, but it came a little bit later for me, was actually beginning to surround myself with people who wanted to help me meet my needs and then actually letting them. That was really anxiety producing to let people do things for me. And I, I had to consciously just go, okay, I'm a, it's as simple as, like I said, I'll, I'll take the garbage out. And, you know, we got to take the garbage from the kitchen to the front gate. It's 20 feet. Got to unlock the gate, put it out on the street. My, if I'm taking the garbage out, my wife will go, you need help? Well, no, I don't. I don't need any help to take a bag of garbage from the kitchen to the front. And I, and so I, my gut response will always say no. But then I realize, well, I don't need any help, but she wants to be with me. She wants to accompany me. She doesn't want to think I'm doing all the work. Well, she's not. She, she's a very hard worker. I go, yeah, yeah, come help me. The, do I really need the help? No. But it was actually, it took me a while. I'm still learning that way. You know, she's not really thinking I need help taking the garbage out. She just wants to come take the garbage out with me, just to walk to the street with me and back. You know, it's, it's okay. Well, who am I to say no to that? That's the thing about being a bad receiver. It robs people of the enjoyment of helping you. You've you've stole my words. When um, I, when I got I got divorced in my late forties after twenty five years of marriage to two different women, and, and again when I started dating and started meeting nice girls, you know who wanted to do anything for me, wouldn't ever say what they wanted, wouldn't make a decision. I thought, oh, I I had empathy for my two ex wives, what I put them through with being a nice guy. But I remember I was dating one woman. And I met her because she sold me shoes at Nordstrom. And she, so she worked in retail fashion sales. And I remember one time she came over to my apartment and I'd done some laundry, left it on my couch. She started folding my laundry. And I said, you, you don't have to do that. She goes, no, I like doing it. And, I, and she goes, and I'm good at it. And, you know, so she folds on my laundry, puts a little stack on the end of my bed. And she goes, but I won't put it away for you. I said, I'm not putting it away either. I'm leaving it out there to remind me somebody loves me, you know, that, that somebody wanted to do something nice for me. After that, I started leaving my clean laundry on the couch so she could have the joy 
of coming over because it gave her pleasure. I thought, who am I to rob her of that pleasure? And I need to work on it because how am I going to receive great things in this world if I'm not good at receiving? If I can't, if I can't let somebody fold my laundry, how am I going to receive the blessings of wealth, of fame, of opportunity, of adventure? So it's, it's a very conscious practice. It was for me. So it's how do I let people give and let them have the pleasure of doing it? So the solution is not being a bad guy because a lot of people, and <laughs> you, could try, you could try. <laughs> so, you know, nice guys finish last. The bad guy gets the girl. Um, uh, you know, women will, um, sleep with the alpha but marry the beta you know pick your meme or cliche yeah, of choice yeah. so they're all out there sure to, to to come up with and it seems let me i'm going to try and interpret what i think the your philosophy is and, and let me know if i get it right i think the downsides of being a nice guy although subtle and often completely opaque to the nice guys themselves yes are kind of evident given um can become evident given enough crowdsourcing of sense making so people and community come up with memes and and characters in tv shows and and, and stuff like that right the solution that it, the low resolution solution that then gets proposed is if x x being nice guy is bad and doesn't get what you want then opposite of x yeah. y which is bad guy must be good so be. the prevalence of you know uh treat her like you don't like her uh like why women love chads like that kind of more um lothario approach to attracting women and 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 getting what you want in life and sort of you know being ruthless and stuff is that a an erroneous solution to the problem of nice guyness it's the a core problem with what you just proposed is it is equally inauthentic as as the other and it's equally attached to some external outcome by trying to figure out how to do it right right have i just do this right again then i'll get the women to approve of me we're still in the same boat we're just looking for a different right way of doing it now as simple as this sounds you know, like it, when i do like interviews with like uh, a female coach that, that maybe works with men and um, and I say something that, you know, generalization like the feminine, meaning all things feminine, you know, women, but dogs, cats, babies, opportunity, money, weather, whatever. I'll say is highly attracted to a man who's comfortable in his own skin, knows where he's going and looks like he's having a good time going there. And the women, you know, coaches, interviewers, podcasters on the call always go, oh, yes. And I'm going, Okay. They're, they're reacting, kind of their nervous system is reacting to that thing. I didn't say the guy's an asshole. I didn't say he treats women bad. I didn't say he doesn't give a fuck about he he's he's centered in his own body. He's he's differentiated. He's asking himself, what do I want? What's important to me? Following through on that, you know, not leaving the messes behind, not trying to be perfect, not seeking anybody's approval. He's on mission, he's on purpose. And in my experience, the feminine is highly attracted to that. You don't have to work at, at getting the feminine to be attracted. Now, are you always going to have feminine approval? I told someone the other day, this has never come out of my mouth before, but I said, actually, there is no standard of feminine approval. The, the feminine 
is not about standards. It's just about whatever is moving. Masculine is standards. You, you go into the masculine world, you know when you've lived up to the standard, when you've hit the ball out of the park, when you've scored a touchdown, when you made A's, when you, you know, made X amount of money. The masculine doing standards are clear. We can go into that world and go, I've achieved. I've made it. We have it. We have the stats. It's rigorous. It's orderly. It requires something of you. There's discipline. The fe- there is no such thing as feminine approval. I mean, ask any guy, even a woman who approved of them dearly in one moment. I'll ask them, have you ever had experiences where the very next moment she was unapproving of you and nothing about you had changed? You hadn't even done. And guys all go, yeah, isn't that the way it always worked? <laughs> yeah. They, you know, one minute I, when I was dating, I had women tell me, Robert, you're the most amazing man. I'm so glad I met you. I'm so grateful. I'm so happy. And then never hear from them again. Or say, Robert, uh, you know, after two weeks, you know, I'm, a, I'm taking a break from dating or I'm giving my ex another try. And I'm going, what just happened? That's the world of the feminine. It does, it isn't nailed down and orderly. So we, we have to quit seeking feminine approval. Um, one of my certified coaches wrote a book that, that, that I really like, but there's a line in there. It said that a man does not mature until he quits seeking the love of a woman. As long as we're seeking love, that's a feminine trait. As long as we're seeking to get that approval, that love, that validation from a woman, we're in a loop that there's no escape from. But when we, when we can self-validate, when we're on purpose, when we're living life on our terms, all of a sudden that makes us very attractive to the feminine. It will come to us. That's, that's my experience. It will come. Now, as soon as you turn and go, oh, it's here. How do I keep it? How do I make it? No, no, no. <laughs> we just blew it. They're all of a sudden now, they're <laughs> going to get that look on their face again. Like I go, what I do wrong? <laughs> so if we take the, how do I get the women's approval out of the equation? You're more likely to get it. Now, does that mean you just don't give a fuck, don't care, whatever? That's not what I'm, again, it's not black and white. We, we, we men want to make it black and white. It must be this or it must be that. No, it's this. This is a, another level that we rise to, that lets us put a dent in the universe, that lets us live with purpose and passion, that lets us connect deeply with others, that lets us be vulnerable and courageous, that actually invites the love into our life that, that we desire rather than seeking it. Well, ultimately, I was watching this um, video from Alain de Botton from the School of Life. Do you know that guy? British philosopher, phenomenal insight. You, you, you were the second person who mentioned him in the last two or three days. I always pay attention. When, so whenever I hear someone's name, like, you know, when I, whenever I heard, you need to get on a Chris Williamson show. When I heard that three times in the same week, you know, I thought, wait a minute, that name sounds familiar. Oh, three for, I'm, we're, I'm already, on, we're, we're already booked in. We're, I'm, I'm on, I'm, he's on my calendar. What do you, what do you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's, um, so I, I use were, a, I was just going to say what you're referring to. He wrote an op-ed article in the New York Times maybe 10 years ago. The the title was Why You Will Marry the Wrong Wrong Person. Yeah, I love I love that article. I copied it. It's it's just classic. He's, he's outstanding. Uh, I've he's on my Mount Rushmore of of of, of guests. He was very formative for me. Um, one of the reasons that going to go on a tangent about why I love Alanda Botton. One of the reasons that I really love him is he's so softly spoken. And he's so embodied in the nuance of being fallible, of how our emotions run the show. He's not posturing. He's unbelievably smart. You know, he's very, very well versed in Renaissance art and history and poetry and and sculpture and 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 all all this stuff. But there's no posturing 
from his left brain. Yeah. There's none of this sort of over-rationality. He, he accepts with complete face value the fact that we can be self-contradictory and embarrassing and, and all the rest of it. But anyway, he has, he has this line in a video that I was watching recently where he talks about a person whose greatest achievement would be after their death, people would say they never made a fuss. Oh, they didn't make a fuss. They didn't, you know, they didn't cause any ripples. They didn't make any waves. And he's talking about largely uh, uh, an equivalent of the nice guy, this person who's, you know, overly pliable, who's concerned about upsetting others, who's doing all of this stuff. And uh, I just, it really, it really sort of struck home. Like, oh my god, like that's the, that's the inheritance and the legacy which is waiting for you. And ultimately, you can make it to the end of your life having either made all of the messes in the world or made zero messes at all, depending on whether you go bad guy mode or nice guy yeah, mode. Yeah. Um, but like your legacy as you look back on your life is going to be one of you playing a persona. You're never going to really be able to connect to any of the things that you do. People, accomplishments, praise, compliments, adoration, money, because it wasn't you that earned that. You didn't earn your money. The role that you're playing earned the money. The role that you're playing got the marriage. The role that you're playing got the relationship or the job raise or, or created the family or the, the billion dollar company. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. That's, that kind of messes with your head, doesn't it? <laughs> Scary. You know, when you were describing, and I can't, pronounce his name pronounce his name alain de botton oh yeah that's beautiful when you were describing him i'm sitting there thinking i'm a straight guy and that guy sounds sexy as hell the way you were describing <laughs> he's uh, he, i mean he's got the classic philosopher's build but so be it so be it here's, <laughs> here's something else so here's something else that i've had in in my mind um since looking at your work and kind of i've spent a lot of time over the last three years uh looking at evolutionary psychology mating dynamics so on and so forth we don't see, especially from women at the moment, many conversations online about nice guys, about guys being too nice, about guys being too pliable. A lot of the conversation skews toward guys being too toxic, sure. guys being too immature, but it's immature. It, it tends to be in a, in, in a toxic manner. It's sort of the use and discard, the use and abuse, right. uh, the, the very sort of transient transactional nature. What is the reason, do you think, that there isn't as much popularity if if and i don't disagree i think that a huge problem will be the pliability and and dishonesty and niceness of men is it just less tweetable to to have that as the reason <laughs> that you can't find men i've got all of these men that keep bending over backward and keep doing things for me is it that it's kind of publicly unpopular for women to call that out because it seems like they're being ungrateful what do you what do you think it is well because I'm not in a woman's head, I, I, I can't, and because and I'm not on social media, I, I also, but I, I do know what you're talking about. Of course, there are memes that, 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 that run. And I, I do, you know, because I get a Google uh, notice every time nice guy, you know, pops up somewhere, I, I do see when, when it does pop up. It usually pops up in right-wing Republican writing um, most often. But when women do write their blog articles about nice guys, it is most often how nice guys aren't nice. 
of how they used basically the covert contracts of, oh, I'm going to listen to you talk about your problems. I'm going to pay your car payment this month. I'm going to pretend like I care about you. And then when they, you know, ask the woman out or want her to have sex, it goes, no, I, I never thought of you that way. You're a friend, you know. And, the, and then the guy, of course, that all that resentfulness, that passive aggressive, that rage comes out. Yeah. And so, you know, that meme does show up, but, but it still ends up being toxic masculinity. Here is my thought, and it sounds like you've looked uh, a, a lot at this, and you might even have a better perspective than me. My thought is that, you know, I grew up during whatever the wave of the angry feminism was in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if that's first wave, second wave. But, you know, every man's a rapist, and erection's a sign of aggression. And, you know, that already bought in. My mother, you know, my mother's generation were the first, I think, true feminists. She raised my, my sister to not need a man, raised her boys to be different from their father. You know, that was kind of the beginning of, of that movement. And um, so from that, I grew up with, I don't want to be like those bad men the women are complaining about. So, so kind of the toxic masculinity meme has been around for a while. It just didn't have social media and now mainstream media, mainstream media. I, I, I can't even listen to like NPR anymore because it's kind of like, it's just gone so much to like, let's just run fluff articles, you know, fluff stories and stuff like that. Agreed. Um, I think there had to be a pendulum swing. You know, most of that's directed at patriarchy. You know, now you just say patriarchy and like we all understand exactly what that means. It's evil, right? But, but patriarchy was also provide and protect. You know, there was also positives a part of it. And was there an ownership mentality? Yeah. Did that lead to colonialism and, you know, abuses towards women and children? Yeah. Uh, racism? Yeah. So, yeah, all of that. Well, you know, when we make a social change, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So yeah, let's just rail against this big idea of patriarchy, toxic masculinity, you know, you know, mansplaining, manspreading, everything that men do is bad kind yeah. of stuff. I, I think maybe it had to go to an extreme. And, and I think most sociologists that look at big shifts in society say when you have an oppressed people, um, downtrodden, it almost has to become like a revolution. It has to be at the extremes. It doesn't it needs happen. to be a correction. Yeah. It's, it's not like a Gandhi that just, you know, let's, let's subtly create the shift. Um, so I think there has to be that overcorrection. Yeah. And, and, you know, so we went through the hashtag me too, where, you know, men were, you know, you know, accused, tried, you know, prosecuted and, you know, in the media lost jobs, lost status, Purely because some woman said, oh, I want to join the Me Too crowd, you know. And, yeah, there was a lot of abuses that were being addressed. Should they have been ad addressed through social media? I, I don't know if that was, you know, the most uh, democratic way to do it, but it's how it got done. And then, you know, yeah, if you, you know, publish something that gets a lot of likes and a lot of follows and, yeah, other people are going to publish it. So, yeah, it went to the experience. The incentives aligned to make it happen. Of, of course they do. And social media is all about algorithms. And, you know, the more something shows up, the more you see of it. Uh, that's why I don't, one of the reasons I don't like social media. Um, but I actually think that we're actually making an adjustment. You know, I, I, I saw articles yeah, a couple years ago likening anything that had to do with men's work to like the oh there goes the balloons 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> you said Honestly, it wasn't going to happen. I didn't think it was going to work. How have you managed to make balloons come up I'm, on the screen? Magic. I promise. I promise. I'm magic. Stop doing it. I, I wish I, yeah, I can't quit moving my hands now. The, the thumb will probably go up. <laughs> maybe, maybe confetti. All right. All right. Okay. So even just a couple of years ago, I saw articles about linking the January 6th, you know, riots, you know, in Washington, D.C. to anything having to do with men's work, like conflating that that all came out of the men's movement. And I'm going, and th this was in main, this was Washington Post ran an article like that, right? So it's mainstream media. I think actually that, I think maybe we've reached that far, that far extreme. And I think maybe it's starting to where all of a sudden that's losing its interest. It's, it seems to, you know, Oh, okay. There's another meme about toxic masculinity. Oh, people get there's bored. another meme about Andrew Tate. There's another, you know, blah, blah, blah. And people do get bored. And now maybe in this, because I'm in the middle of men's work. It's what I've done for years. And I'm, I'm in, you know, a men's program myself. I built a men's program. I believe in it. I, I really do think we're moving to a better space that as men become more conscious, um, of, of the things that I think, you know, that I teach that are valuable, um, you know, being honest, being transparent, making their needs a priority, surrounding themselves with people who want to help them get their needs met, living with purpose, living with passion, you know, being generous, making the world a better place, being open-hearted, being loving, you know, quality, good qualities. That I think is changing the world, is shifting the dynamic. Women, I think, will begin to go, that, that's actually really attractive. That's, that's really sexy. That's better. I like that. And um, and I think there'll still be a few ones hanging on to, but I let's all still stay mad at men. Let's, you know, let's still, and after a while, you know, one of the things that really was a big shock to me, I was probably in my 40s when I was I was talking to, you know, a feminist. And I mentioned somebody who identified as a feminist, a woman, maybe on an airplane. And and I said, Well, here's the feminism I grew up with. And she said, Oh, you mean that every man's a rapist? You you, you like believed all that? I go, well, it sure was. A, he goes, that was just a few angry, pissed off women that got a lot of attention. I go, that's all it was. Not all women felt that way. She goes, no. And they still don't. I go, that's actually good to know that maybe all that noise that, you know, gets a lot of likes and follows, maybe that doesn't represent the, even the majority of women. There was a really wonderful term that I heard last year called the tyranny of the minority. And it happens. Yeah. I think that that explains it. So yeah, uh, another I, way of putting it is the slowest dumb shit on the freeway is going to control how fast everybody can go. Very good. Yes. Yes. We're controlled by the extremes and the idiots. Um, it's interesting to think about why that might be the case. I, I think that you've probably, you're probably not far wrong that it's still so popular to fit men into the oppressive, tyrannical, patriarchal, overbearing, dominating, controlling role that if women were to if, if a woman was to post online something which is more more honest perhaps, which would be um I keep going out for men who are overly pliable. And because they're so pliable, <laughs> I'm concerned that they're not being honest with me. What does that sound like? Well it sounds like a call for men to be less pliable. 
which is not far uh -oh. away from men to be more aggressive, more well, controlling, that's more like dominant. writing a book that's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Why would someone write a book teaching men to be not nice? Exactly. We, we, do, yeah. we do live in a black and white world. And again, media, social media loves the black and white. It doesn't like nuance, subtlety. That's the dangerous, the real N-word of 2024 is nuance. That's the nuance. real one that you shouldn't be saying. All right, so getting into getting into relationships, which are obviously, I think, ground zero for a lot of this stuff. You know, you can kind of hide things away from yourself when it's on your own and you're in and out of work and all the rest of it. Not everybody is emotionally connected with their work and not everybody's emotionally connected with how organized their source cupboard is. Relationships, real ground zero what do nice guys not understand about how female attraction works? Well, most of us are believing what our mothers told us, <laughs> you know, uh, if they told us anything. Well, just be nice to girls. That's what my mother said. Be a gentleman. Well, okay. Makes sense, you know. Be a gentleman. And I am. Uh, I'm a gentleman, but a woman taught me this one. Uh, I always open the door for women. I tell them, wait for me. I'll open your door. Now, if you really break it down, that's me being dominant. You know, I tell them what to do. Wait for me. I'm going to open your door. And of the, of the several hundred women who I've told to do, wait for me, I'll open your door. Only one has pushed back against it. And she pushed back for a while. Then all of a sudden she quit and kind of decided she actually really liked. Uh, actually, what she did is she jumped my bones in a public place in a very, I said, I don't, we need to take this somewhere else. After the while, she'd been pushing back against my dominance. So for there to be attraction, there has to be a polarity. And polarity involves dominance and submission. I know those are evil, terrible words, you know, because uh, we think about dominant men, you know, making women be submissive. You're in, you're in a safe space here, okay. Robert. It's fine. I, I'm, not, I'm not sweating it. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is going out on the internet, which is fine. You know, and what's happened is the polarity has just switched where the females have become dominant, the dominant players and the guys have become the, the submissive players. And then the, the women go, how come I can't find a guy that turns me on? And the guys are going, how come I can't seem to turn women on? Well, it's, it's, it's reverse the polarity. You, you can't have polarity. That's attraction without dominance and submission. And the more subtle it is, the more subtle the attraction is. The more blatant it is, tends to be the more intense the attraction is. We've probably all experienced that in one way or another. And I tell people you can't have sex without dominance and submission. Otherwise, it's two bodies lying next to each other waiting for something to happen. You know, you got to have a, yeah, yeah, fight. You got to have a top and bottom. You got to have a pitcher and catcher, right? There's got to be a, a polarity. Now, the beauty is that polarity can you, you can flip it around, you know, back and forth. And I think in very conscious relationships that that happens beautifully. My, my wife's very strong. She grew up eight out of 10 kids in poverty in Guadalajara, Mexico, alcoholic father, got beat on by family members, beat on by neighbors, you know, abused by family members, abused by priests. You know, she, she's been through, you know, she goes to the gym two hours a day. She can out squat me easily. She's done my tie. I, I don't, I don't piss her off. Um, you know, she can get shit done. I grew up in a middle class white bread neighborhood of Seattle, Washington, surrounded by Boeing engineer families. You know, just, you know, I, I never had to fight for anything. Okay. So she's tough, but she doesn't, she's always told me, I love it when you tell me no. She goes, I don't, she goes, I, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want you to always ask me what, what, you know, what do you want to do? She, she likes it when I'll make, we'll walk into a restaurant. 
and you know they'll here in Mexico and they'll say they'll they'll say should I they'll ask her should I get the waiter say should I give him a menu in English she goes no he lives in Mexico give him one in Spanish and I'll say yeah give give my wife and kids the menu in English and then they hand her a menu and she goes no he's my boss he'll order for me and they always laugh about that and I say yeah I get to be the boss when she says I can you know so we got the whole the whole shtick down. But the truth is, she is strong, she's powerful, she can get shit done, she can kick ass, but she doesn't want to be in that mode all the time. She wants to to be led, she wants to submit, she wants to open, she wants to be done to in, in blissful kinds of ways. Well, that's my job, right? So, and even though I'm kind of more that, I'm I'm go along to get along, I, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, this or that, either one's okay with me, I'm kind of more that way. She doesn't like it when I'm that way. So for her, she's happiest when I will play the default lead, the default decision maker. But she likes it best when I said, here's what I was thinking. What do you think? You know, I don't just say, what do you think? You know, what do you want? I'll say, you know, I was thinking a white with a little bit of tint of gray in it. What do you think? You know, she wants me to, to, to lead that. And then she'll feel the polarity and then she'll tell me what she thinks or wants. And then you just say, you decide. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go pick out the paint. Um, am I being abusive to her by being dominant? No. I've heard so many women tell me when the guy leaves it all up to them, too compliant, the women feel burdened by that. Most are in their masculine, dominant role all day long in their work, in their career, raising children. Even mothering is a masculine, dominant state to be in. You're taking care of kids' needs. That's not feminine you don't then want to have to take care of your partner after that yeah then then when the guy says oh i don't guess you want to have sex tonight would you or what do you want for and it's it's just one more thing that they got to check off their to-do list they don't want that now am i making a generalization yeah is it fluid yeah is it nuanced yeah is it okay the guy's always got to be the dominant and the woman's but no that's not what i'm saying but for, for men, when I start talking about them consciously setting the tone and leading in a relationship, when I say that to a nice guy, the response, he usually, he'll, he'll ponder it and go, okay, Dr. Glover, what I hear you say when you say take control, I go, no, no, you did not hear me say the word take control. I did not say it. I don't believe in it. I'm talking about you lead, you set the tone, you state what you want, where you want to go, what you want to eat. And, and, and give her a chance to follow, like on the dance floor. She can't follow where you don't lead. Give her that and then be open to a discussion. Be open to her taking the, you know, setting the tone and leading. But it's not about, but guys, nice guys will say, well, you know, when you said take control, no, 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 no. it's more nuanced than that. But again, so that, that, that's my job is helping guys apply the, the nuance, that, that word of 2024. What is the role of emotional tension? Oh, you've done some research. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's a cute little wink of the eye. That just, I'm just reflective. flirting with you. I'm it, just it, trying to, it's I'm reflexive. Just trying to, I'm, just, I'm just trying to flirt with you. Yeah, I, the, the, I know. The, the, the girls like it. Uh, probably the boys do too. Uh-huh. I, I, I live in a very gay community, so, you know, <laughs> I know how it was. Um, okay, so the role of emotional tension. There we go. We, we just had emotional tension going on right there. I'm going to I'm going to make a generalization that doesn't apply to everybody but it does seem to apply to a lot. And the the generalized statement is is that in general for women to experience attraction, say towards a man, arousal 
and to stay attached to that man over time, she has to experience some kind of emotional tension. She's got to feel something, the butterflies, the this, the that, the drama, the does he love me, doesn't love me. And we men can kind of understand that a little bit. We kind of like the tension we feel of go, oh, she, she looks nice, you know, like her boobs, whatever. You know, that creates a tension for us. But in general, men don't like emotional tension, especially in a relationship. If you even think about, you know, our sporting events where we do get our tension, they have clocks on them. You know, we know it's going to end at this time. That's why baseball has fallen out of favor. That's why they put a clock on baseball. They put, the, they put the pitch clock last year. Yeah. You know, that problem. How many times you can throw to first, you know, because, oh, we got to have it on a clock, you know. So, um, so men's tension is on the clock. Oh, yeah, I, I, I know this, you know, this, this adventure flick I'm watching and the hero, this is happening. I know he's going to get out of it and it's going to be done in 35 minutes. You know, it's done. We're done. Shoot, go home, kick back into nothingness, right? The feminine never gets tired of tension. The feminine, if it, if it isn't feeling tension, is bored, it will create tension. And so that's what's hard for men to understand. You know, we think that being nice to women will make them be attracted to us. But nice creates absolutely no attention, no tension really for anybody, men or women. But we think, well, that's what mom told me to do. Go be, go, go be nice to them. It's what, that's what I, in junior high, all the women were complaining about those jerks who created tension for them. And so I listened to her complain about the jerks and she kept going back to the jerk, even after, you know, I'm such a nice guy. So in general, women need that emotional tension. Watch it. They create it within themselves. Um, and, and we guys, if we have any kind of tension between us, we'll just have it out. Maybe we'll punch each other and then we'll be done. We'll go have a beer. It's all good. You know, uh, we, we don't need to keep going back into that tension state to have a bond, have a connection. Well, we'll go do something together. We may go compete. We may go bring our A game and leave it all on the field. But then we walk off arm in arm. You know? So it's just the, 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 the difference between that masculine and feminine. So the hardest part for men to understand is that the women need that tension. So even when I say, wait for me, I'll open your door. And now I create a little bit of dominance and she waits for me. That's tension. Right. It's just a little bit. It's a little subtle. You know, even like, you know, say, hey, put the menu down. I'll order for us tonight. There's tension in that. Not being nice. It's actually creating some. What's he going to order for? Is he going to pick something I like? Do I trust him? <laughs> Is it going to be an adventure? You know, I, I tell guys and, you know, and, 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 you know, guys will think it's game playing and it, it kind of can look like that. And, but the, the, the real thing is, is actually just is how do we get more conscious? So I'll tell a guy, for example, you know, if a woman sends you a message, text message, or calls you, and if you reply right away or you pick up the phone and answer, how much tension will the woman experience through that? Well, well, none. We've relieved it. And as soon as we answered the phone, her tension went away. But what if you didn't answer it? What if you called her back in 30 seconds, 45 seconds, an hour? And she goes, where were you? Why didn't you answer? And what if you didn't give her an answer to that? And she's going, why didn't he answer? What was he doing? Now, here's the thing, because us guys tend, if we do have emotional tension, we like what I call positive emotional tension. You know, it, it, it feels good to us. For, the, for women, they don't care. Is it positive emotional tension? Is it, is it pet or is it net? Negative emotional tension. They don't care. Emotional tension is emotional tension. And so, you know, if it means, you know, them starting a fight, you know, them doing something knows, they know is going to piss us off. It's kind of like they don't care. They got our attention. 
And and that's all that mattered. They got our attention and there's tension. And, and even the thing of guys like listening to women talk about the problems. I tell guys there's a, an, an inverse negative relationship between the amount of time a man spends listening to a woman talk about her problems and the likelihood he's going to get laid. What do you mean? It means that if you sit and listen to her talk about her problems, you've actually relieved all of her tension. Tension flowed completely out of because, you know, she talked, she talked, she talked, all, all the tension came away. And what I tell guys is then you end up looking like uh, her girlfriend with a penis. And odds are she doesn't want to have sex with her girlfriend. So anything we do to relieve their tension actually works against us and robs them. Kind of like we talked about earlier, are we going to rob them of the joy of doing for us? Well, are we going to rob them of the emotional tension that they have to have to feel, to feel something, to, to want to engage? You had this fantastic example of how emotional tension is enjoyed differently by men and women by the story arcs of romantic comedies and how men and women uh, experience experience that. Can you explain that? Well, you mean like, you know, you, you take your woman to watch Titanic and she, Titanic, you know, she's already seen it eight times and she walks away with her panties wet thinking, how come I can't have that? And the guy, the guy's checking his watch, checking his phone, is Sports Center on yet? How do I get well, out of here? I, th I thought what, what was particularly interesting was you, you explaining, and it really sort of hit home to me that, uh, if you're a man who's watching a romantic comedy, you see um, regulation at the beginning, everything is is fine. Then you see dysregulation, something happens and everything goes up in the air. Mm -hmm. Then you see regulation again, a mo like middle movie regulation yeah. where yeah. The, the couple first starts to get together and you're like, oh, well, I mean, that's it. Like, Let's the, go home, the movie's done. Yes, done. Whereas what the woman no. then wants is this protracted, oh, but the ex-girlfriend's back in the picture, but oh my God, he hasn't got his right visa and he's going to be that. deported. How are they going to keep the yeah. relationship going? And it's just protracted and protracted and protracted and protracted. And then I don't know, I don't know what it's like to be a woman at the end of a rom-com, but it may be unsatisfying for there to be a conclusion. It's like, what well, can we just, let's yeah. roll it for another three hours. Let's just continue well, to well, extend well, this tension. That's maybe where, where Bollywood figured it out. Let's just do the wedding scene. Everybody's dancing to a real upbeat song. We know it's over, but now they'll, they'll do a part two of it. Um, and, and you know, women I've been in relationship with learned, don't take me to a romantic comedy. I'm sitting there going, that is so fucking unrealistic. That doesn't happen in the real world. How come every guy has a job he doesn't actually have to go to? How come every woman's a fashion editor in every one of these? Yeah, I know he loves dogs, but he lives in this New York loft and makes canoes. That's how he supports himself. Come on, that's not real. Yeah, yeah you don't want to go to a romantic comedy with me because I live in the world of, could that really be real? Could that really happen? Do people really do that? Uh, nope. You know, that's not how the real world works, but it creates emotional tension. And so that's really what it is all about. It's not about reality. The masculine wants to go resolve all the emotional tension to get us back into reality. So, yeah, I, it's, it's really hard for me to watch a romantic comedy and just twiddle my thumbs and just not, not say anything. Oh, it's excruciating. So thinking about this dynamic that we have, this emotional tension, this amount of, of, of dominance and, and uh, direction uh, and, and suggestion that comes from the man. Um, there will be women listening and out there who 
enjoyed oh, they're, they're, it. They're writing a blog article about us right now. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Add it to the list. But there will be women listening who are maybe a little conflicted, or there will be men who imagine that their woman might be conflicted because you say, well, she wants, she comes home, she's had a difficult day at the work because Kelly, that bitch in the cubicle next door has done that thing again that pisses her off. Yeah. And the woman wants to be able to vent. She also wants her man to listen to her. And it's this odd duality of not knowing what's best for us and of the things that we want not always being in our best interests. Right. And you quoted the best Onion article, which is, woman turns man into a partner she doesn't want to be with. Uh, I, I, that, the, the article, the headline alone is, is enough, right? You know, and, and again, this is, this is the dance of relationship. Wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could just say, guys, just do it this way. Every woman's going to like it. No, it doesn't work that way. And, but what, what you said what was really true is that, yeah, so if, for example, you know, the woman in your life's been in her masculine all day, doing at work, putting up with asshole managers, asshole customers, asshole clients, asshole coworkers. And now, you know, she comes home, there's just one more asshole in the house putting demands on her. So, for example, um, the woman that folded my clothes that I mentioned, again, I met her at the mall as she sold me shoes. And, when, and after we started dating, um, one of the things where we really clicked is she liked baseball. I like baseball. I'm so, a Texas um, Rangers fan. I could have been part of a threesome. It would have been great. There, there we go. You're flirting again. But <laughs> uh, but you, you lost me as soon as you said Texas Rangers, you know. Um, hey, look, but those, I know they, those of us with a World Series championship were, in the it, last year. Yeah, you're you're the we, you're the Homer. Yeah, we we won the World Series. Let me see the uh, ring, man. Show it's show me the ring. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um she liked baseball. So, you know, she'd get off work four or five o'clock in the afternoon. I'd already have a bar stool staked out at the Ruth's Chris that was right next to, you know, where she worked. A couple of baseball games are already on the screen uh, at the bar. They have this great half price hamburger during happy hour. She'd come in and she would just start. You know, I'd already have the wine ordered sitting there. You know, the, the you know, the, the appetizers are coming. And she's like this about her day, right? Like that. She's been in her masculine all day. I would take out my phone, set it at five minutes, and say, you have my undivided attention for five minutes. Put the phone on the bar. I would give her eye contact. I would face her. I would listen. Undivided attention. She would run out of steam before five minutes was up because she's going, I can sit here and complain, but there's a baseball game on, and there's a glass of wine sitting here. What do I prefer? Before five, now, if I didn't put her on the clock at five minutes, it was a game. It was me being dominant, but in a loving, playful. If I didn't put her on the clock, she might be crabby all night long and she would not enjoy herself. Because one of the things I found is that for somebody who identifies as feminine to be in their masculine all day are often not good at getting themselves out of that masculine. I got to go home and wash dishes and get the laundry dunked. There's things we got to do before I got to get up and go to work tomorrow. Oh, sit down. Have a glass of wine. Tell me about your day. Let me rub your feet. I'm a big fan of, of in a sense, leading her back into her feminine, out of that masculine, rigid, get shit done kind of state of mind. And now all of a sudden, she begins opening. And she'll tell me her attention. I might even say, a woman taught me this. I'll say, you know what? I want to hear about your day, but give me the guy version. 
you know, and, and I've never had a woman ask me, what does that mean? I'll say, you, you, you want me to be your guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then I need the guy version when you tell me about the day and how translate. about how Kelly in the cubicle next to her, you know, well, I, and I know why she does it because she's just insecure and she's always wanting attention and she always takes it out of me. And I, no, no, dear, I love you. Give me the guy version. Kelly pissed me off today. Great. Now I understand why you had a bad day. So, you know, get playful with it. Get playful with it. There's definitely one of the uh, common threads that I'm noticing through a lot of the dynamics is a degree of playfulness. And it's my nature. So it it is what I bring. And, you know, it's helping. It's helping to it's helping to relieve the tension, uh, relieve the tension. It's helping to relieve the seriousness of everything that that it, it gives more play. It gives, like, uh, in the engineering term, it gives more room within the system for things to breathe. You make a suggestion, but it's not it's not done in too rigid of a fashion. There's 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 movement in there, and it's done. It's evident the reason that you're doing it, and it's not in a mocking way. It's not in a passive aggressive way. It's not in a condescending or patronizing way. But the reason that this, I think, works is it shows. Hey, look, like we're here to enjoy. Our time together. We're yeah. here, you're here to enjoy. We're here to enjoy this. And whether it's someone's had something good happen, someone's had something bad happen, someone's sad, someone's mad, someone's whatever. A, the appropriate amount of playfulness. I can struggle to think of really many situations in which it doesn't make it better. Yeah, I. I and that doesn't mean getting silly and everything's a joke. Because again, guys will kind of like, oh, you mean make a joke about it and go. And again, teaching men. To, to be lighthearted, that, 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 that can be a pretty daunting task. Yeah. Um, now, what's funny, though, if you get men with men and, and let them just kind of begin to let their hair down, guys get silly with each other. And, you know, and, but we're, I think we're afraid of showing that to women. Oh, yeah. I, I, won't, I won't appear manly. I won't be, you know. There's a degree of, there's a degree of competence, I think. Uh, I certainly notice this do you know who charlie hoopit is from charisma on command he's got a very big charisma channel on youtube it really really great guy very embodied ton of self-work ton of men's work um and he uh helps mostly men but also women uh, become more charismatic mm-hmm. so he, he he's he's learned the principles of, of confidence and charisma and um one of the best tools that he teaches is when people ask a question the best answer isn't always the right one. And, you know, he uses this example of um, how to overcome your discomfort around trying to be funny. And he says, if you walk out of the house and you're with people, you walk out of a bar or whatever, and the weather is one extreme of either hot or cold, mm-hmm. make a joke about it being the opposite. Yeah. And he was like, it's the shittest joke. It is the worst. It's a pure yeah. dad joke. But he said, it'll get a chuckle out of people if you walk outside and it's freezing hot and you go dude wish i'd brought some shorts today this is great yeah. um like people have a little bit of a, a, a chuckle about it but it really really showed me and i have a friend george who's been on the show a lot he a lot of the time if you're playing kind of like a game of tennis so you're playing a game of tennis which involves a, a linear conversation here is a question there is an answer here is a question there is an answer here's another answer here's another question and you play this back and forth he regularly hits the ball sideways. So he'll call back to a thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, or he'll say, oh, you know, I bet that such and such a famous person from the media would have done that or whatever. Like he'll 
rip the conversation out like orthogonally from where it is. And there's play in that. He's not answering the question because he he has the comfort in himself to not need to get validation by being, I am the person that always knows the answer. Right. I am the person that is always able to give the, the correct conclusion that draws the line, that puts the full stop and dots the I's and crosses the T's. I don't need to be that person. And it's such a breath of fresh air because you're having this conversation and, and you're like, oh, I'm excited. Like, I don't know what's going to, and it, fi- it engenders that in you as well. But there's definitely like good boy energy, a nice guy energy in, I will answer the question properly. I will ensure that this, you know, if somebody has asked something of me and to deliver it, I shall. And that removes the playfulness. Yeah. You know, and, and when I work with guys around this, when, again, when I, when I learned to date in my 40s and 50s, I, you know, I, I was never good with women. And if I got one, I kept them way too long. And I started getting successful, you know, with, with dating and getting laid. And guys said, Robert, teach us. I'm not, I'm not a dating guru. But th- what you're talking about is it, again, for most of the men I worked with, they get so afraid. I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to piss her off. I'll, I'll blow it. And then, then it's irreparable. And, and I'd say, you know, just touch her. Don't, you know, if, if you have the impulse to touch her, touch her. If you have the impulse to tease her, tease her. If you have the impulse to tell her, come on, let's go do this. Don't hold back. It's crazy as it sounds. I tell guys, blurt and act on impulse. You, you think that's a recipe for disaster, but the truth is, it lets them be themselves because their authentic self comes out. And you know, I've had so many experiences. You know, around when if I, if I just blurted, acted on impulse. You know, I remember one woman I dated on the second date. We were going to go for a walk, and she said, "Well, let me go use the restroom." We're in a, a, a restaurant and she went to the restroom came back and i so i'm gonna go use the restroom i said by the way i enjoyed watching you walk away from me and as soon as i said it i thought oh fuck i probably blew it you know after we broke up we stayed friends and she said months later said you remember when you said that to me I said yeah i thought i blew it and she goes oh no i, I loved it well i it, it i just blurted it right i didn't hold it back mm. i remember an- another woman early, early first date where we're walking and she said something about her her sister or sister-in-law, they're, they're having a shoe party, you know, where women get together and look at shoes. Sounds shoes. like, like the tu- lamest thing a Tupperware. I, I can think of. I, the I, a shoe party. Lamest party in history, but okay. And so I blurted without thinking, oh, shoe shopping is women's porn. She turned and looked at me and she goes, you get it. You understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and so guys will say, well, I'm not funny, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm not talking about telling jokes. I'm talking about whatever that thing that came to the tip of your brain, but you held it back because yeah. you're afraid it might be the wrong thing to say, the wrong thing to do. As soon as you held it back, you killed the tension, the putting it out there. And sometimes you crash and burn, you know, there's the sweat flops. You go, oh man, that didn't get one laugh, you know, but you got to take that risk. Every comedian you know, has had plenty of bombs, to, but man, that one landed. And and it's not about trying to get it right. It's about taking the sensors off and letting that you that maybe just speaks to the obvious out there and people, people they'll relate to it or they won't. It seems a lot like one of the key tactics for rehabilitating a nice guy is learning to kind of get out of your own way. That's a good way to put it, because what we've been doing is, again, go all the way back to where we began this. 
They've been trying to manage their shame. I, I'm, I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I'm going to be found out. I'm going to die. Their anxiety. Oh, no, somebody will react negatively. There'll be pain involved. And, and so that is what's driving the bus is their shame and their anxiety. And so who is really in there? You know, who is the person? Um, one of the things, the comments I get from people that, that work with me or, you know, who, who come to my workshops or seminars or, or do calls with me, they'll say, Robert, I appreciate how, how authentic you are. And I'll go, nobody would have accused me of that 30 years ago. Nobody would have said, Robert, I love how real you are, how authentic you are, how you just share yourself, how, how you share your mistakes, your fuck ups. I didn't. And, and I couldn't attract a woman to save my life. You know, back back in those days, I I, I kind of could, but I I didn't know that what I was what I did that might attract a woman. But I wasn't real. I wasn't authentic. I was holding my finger up, checking the wind. I was a chameleon. You know what's what's going to get me the most laughs, or what's going to get me you know what what what, what will kind of go over well, but not too well. That you know now I'm not on the spot that I got to follow through. And man, to just take the sensors off and just blurt, act on impulse, be you. I think it's such a powerful rehabilitation. And since most nice guys, their sensors are the most prominent with women, that's a great place to go practice. One of my, the, the same friend I was talking about before, Mr. Orthogonal Tennis Game, George, he, uh, he has this idea called only the irrational behavior survives. What he's talking about, <laughs> what he's talking about is he imagines um, being at the funeral of somebody that he knows and he thinks about the conversations that the people are having around the room and they're not having the conversation. The washing was always folded and he turned up on time and all the rest of it. He uses this example of his mum, and he says that his mum hates fighting, just really does, does not like physical fighting, big, big problem with it. And once his brother was in the car, his younger brother was in the car with her and they were driving somewhere and she, I don't know, 50s year old woman, normal British woman, uh, saw two 18 year old boys sort of squaring up to each other and pushing and, and trying to fight or whatever on the side of the, on the pavement. She stops the car in the middle of traffic, gets out and runs over and the brother's like, mum, what the fuck are you doing? Like, like what the, the two guys, the, twice your size and quadruple your testosterone what the fuck are you doing she runs over and she gets in between them physically gets in between them like no fighting no fighting gets back in the car and the brother's like mom that was insane you could have been hurt you could be she's like i don't care i don't care i just don't like fighting no one's fighting and he said at her funeral people will say she was the sort of person that would stop the car in the middle of traffic to stop two boys yeah. from fighting and it's like that only the irrational behavior survives is is similar to what you're talking about that there are rough edges to our personality and our behavior but ultimately that is our personality and behavior like if yeah. your goal your goal should not be as a person on this planet to smooth out any of the things that make you anything into this sort of vanilla amorphous blob that kind of like just glides through it's like no you have things that you want to say and actions that you want to take and changes that you want to make and just the faith to be able to do that unencumbered is that's what life is. Yeah. And, and, and it, it takes support. It takes practice. Um, yeah. You know, I was talking no more Mr. Nice guy about nice guys being Teflon men, so no stick, you know, nothing. I don't want anything to stick to me, but we do connect, as you said, around our rough edges. You know, what we remember about people might not even be always a thing. It, it might even 
bugged us or got on our nerves when they did it mm-hmm. when we're around them. But it, it's also the thing we miss. I mean, you know, Nala, the pit bull's back at my, my door again. I've got French glass doors so I can see her outside my office. Yeah, you know, when she barks during, you know, I'm on an interview, a podcast, it really bugs me. But, you know, if I didn't have her and I'd notice, oh, I miss her bark. You know, I, I love when she'd go crazy and let me know that somebody was out front. Our, our handyman, the, the water guys deliver our water. They call my dog's name because they know she'll bark differently when she's had her name called. And, well, and I would miss that if it, if it ever went. I go, what's wrong with Nala? How come she doesn't bark at people outside anymore? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's rough edges. Bore, you know, all that smooth, get it right. No, you know, that's boring. Why is your first sexual experience so important? You, you, you talking about mine? Uh, you uh, are a flirt. <laughs> Come on. Even that's too far for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> first sexual experience. Why is it very formative? Okay. You know, that's that a good question, but it's also a difficult one to answer because our, our first sexual experience is probably conception you know, I'd say birth, we're born sexual. We're the, the essence of who we are is sexuality. Every living thing is built to reproduce after its own. So our sexuality is the essence of who we are. We, we kind of live culturally thinking, well, you know, children don't become sexual until, you know, that particular age, whatever that might be. But the truth is, you know, Little boys, little girls discover their body parts at a very young age. And, oh, there's pleasure. Before you, you know, they understand the words of parents tell them, stop doing that. You know, they're, 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 they're finding the pleasure in, in, in their own body parts. And the essence of our psyche is, is, is our, our, our is sexuality. You know, if, if so many great teachers, you know, all the way from, from Freud, to David Data, to Osho, to David Snarch, people at least I value, talk about the, the most profound way into who we are, Jung, is to our sexuality, because it is the essence of who we are. So to bring that back to answering your question, I will often ask people like in a workshop, you know, again, I'm, I primarily work with men these days. Well, I 100% work with men these days. I'll ask them, what was your earliest sexual memory? And it doesn't matter what it was. First time you noticed you had an erection, first kiss, first wet dream, first I'll show you mine, you show me yours, first whatever. Uh, and, and it can vary. For, you know, every, but I'll just say, what is your first memory? And then I'll say, get, it, get clear in your mind, what was it? And then I'll ask them, did it occur in the open? Could you go tell your folks about it? Could it be celebrated? Did your parents say, that's amazing. Let's go get pizza. That's a, you know, it's a developmental <laughs> milestone. Um, or was it hidden? Was it secretive? Was it guilt-ridden? Was it shame-based? Uh, even worse, did it feel good, but you felt bad about it feeling good? Right? So for about 99.9% of the people on the planet, our earliest sexual experience was wrapped in shame. In, in hidden darkness, guilt, I'm bad. I can't let anybody find out. So our sexuality gets crosswired with those features. It's bad. It's evil. Hide it. Repress it. Don't let it out. And then that takes, you know, as many different forms as there are people in terms of how that manifests from, from there. 
So then we get to be adolescents and adults and can't figure out why sex is so messy, so difficult, so challenging. So, you know, how come it so, isn't work? How come, how come it's not easy? Yeah. People who think that they have a, a low sex drive might actually just be psychologically scarred from the way that they perceived it. That's very previously. possible. I, and I've, I've often said, you know, I, I, we'll get personal. I didn't discover, I didn't know I could actually masturbate myself to ejaculation until I was a freshman in college. That's pretty late compared to, to most. And, and, you know, I was kind of a late bloomer in a lot of ways around sexuality. And I was just, well, that's just me. But yeah, it's very likely me growing up in a fundamental Christian church where I heard messages really early that if you lust after a woman's breast, you go to all, you go to hell for all eternity. You know, where, you know, my mom taught me to be not be like my dad, where, you know, I listened to the women that he's a jerk. He only wants one thing, you know. Yeah, there might have been some scarring that went into the, you know. <laughs> I'm trying oh, to work out. You know, it's better to not have a sex drive. Oh, my penis betrayed me again by getting erect. <laughs> you know, what? Stop doing that. You yeah. know, you know. I'm trying to work trouble. out from a first sexual experience perspective. My first, the first time I had sex, the girl who I worked with at the local hotel where I was the room service boy. Do you know what a, a fucking what was it a a VW Lupo is a it's Lupo Lupo. It's like the size it's smaller than a Fiat 500 and it was three door and it was in a, uh, like a, an industrial estate did, halfway did, did between. You, did you have sex in a Lupo? I, I had, I, I, if you think that having sex for the first time is difficult, having sex for the first time in a car, that's like half the size of a jumper just turns the, turns the difficulty level up to 11. Um, but yeah, I, maybe, maybe that's, I don't know what that means. We were next to a, like a Mercedes Benz mechanics. Maybe that's why I love F1 so much. I'm not sure. I keep getting an erection whenever I see Lewis Hamilton. I'm not sure. Uh, we, we, we could really spend my, my, my first attempt was in a, a Chevy Vega, you know, it probably slightly bigger, slightly bigger. The next time I tried it, it was on a parked school bus. I got smart, right? Yeah. Very nice. Very good. Well, I mean the school bus, yeah. but um, yeah, it's, it's inter it's very interesting to think about how we sort of internalize these stories. And hey, I had a do you know who Dr. Paul Conti is? Is that with Stanford? I've heard that name. Yeah. I couldn't tell you who he is, but I have heard the name. So he did a four part series with Andrew Huberman last year. I've heard that name too. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so every, every, every everybody says that name all the time. He's fantastic. They're both fantastic. And um Paul does uh evidence based unconscious work, trauma. Uh, and, and such uh, from a very medical standpoint. And um, he was talking to me. He gave me this really lovely frame, very interesting, about how formative experiences in our past can reshape the way that we see the entirety of that world. But importantly, they reshape our memory of what it was like before that as well. So for us to say something like, uh, I get in a car accident when I'm 25, and uh, then you get travel anxiety, which causes you to uh, not enjoy driving or to feel anxious when you're driving. And then at 35, you tell yourself, I've never liked driving. And you're yeah. like, no, until the age of 25, you loved it. Do you not remember you did that thing? It's like, no, 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 no. I was anxious the whole time. And this, this ability that like the fallibility and the malleability of our own memory and our sense of self and our understanding of ourselves, um, the fact that for sufficiently formative experiences can 
like manipulate those and mold them in a different way, I just thought was so, it's fascinating, but kind of brutal as well. Well, and maybe this is a, the same, another way of explaining the same thing. Every time we recall a memory, we fundamentally change the memory. Because every time we recall it, we're now in a different emotional state, a different position, different surroundings. We accurate memory does not exist, right? You know, what, what, even even as we think we're remembering our earliest sexual experience, you know, if there was actually a camera there filming it, we might find out it's completely, totally different surrounding wise than we thought. So every time we recall a memory, we're altering it. So our memories keep changing over a lifetime. So, um, but what, but. What happens at that trauma we're talking about and the, the, what I call the cross wiring, that's happening at an emotional level. And so it doesn't matter even if our memory is accurate in terms of, you know, digitally accurate. What, what matters is emotionally how we move forward with it. And so now if, you know, we've been a sexual creature since birth and all of a sudden something happens that sex is hidden, well, I better keep it hidden from, from here on out. And we don't make that as a conscious decision. It's just an emotional roadmap that we start following. It's mm, very, very interesting. Okay, so we've identified this. Yeah, and people are sitting listening to you and I talking very openly about sexual experiences, and they're going, you're not supposed to do that. You're yeah. not supposed to talk openly about those things because <laughs> they're going on their emotional wiring of how you're supposed to, to you know, be about sex. Yeah, well, look, the VW Lupo opens all sorts of doors. Um, Three of them, exactly. Precisely correct, unless you can clamber out the back. Honestly, dude, I, I, and I remember how not far the passenger seat went back as well. I just thought, this is fucking... Well, and you got to do it in the passenger seat because of the steering wheel. But you guys have the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car. Well, speak for yourself. Look, we've gone through this litany of problems, right? This big, 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 big list. And we don't have enough time to prescribe the panacea for all of the nice guys listening given the fact that you've done so many seminars coaching sessions working with people what have you found if you were to give the biggest movers of um rehabilitation for nice guys um <laughs> i don't think the, i've ever used that exact word for it uh, what 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 are the uh the practices what are the places that they should focus on in order to start to embody themselves more honestly okay yeah be, be their authentic selves exactly i'll just walk you through what i did number one i tell people find safe people don't try to do this on your own you didn't become a nice guy in social isolation don't try to get over it in social isolation we have to set, have safe people to start releasing our shame, to tell people, I've got this story about myself, and people go, well, that's not bad. That's not terrible at all. You're an old, that's normal, what you're describing. So we need safe people to support us, release our shame, perhaps mentor us, encourage us, help us face our fears. So I tell nice guys, go find a coach, therapist, men's group. I love men's groups. Dude, a big chunk of my own personal rehabilitation in, in men's groups. Uh, I was leading five men's groups a week when I was in private practice up in Seattle. Um, I just, I'm a believer. So find a men's group. Don't try to do this alone. How do you, so just to interject there, how do you know if it's a good men's group or a bad men's group? That, that's a good question. And it is somewhat subjective because something, a group you love might not work for me. So, um, when I started looking for something, 
about all that existed at that time was the uh, the Robert Bly mythopoetic, go out in the woods, beat a drum, have the talking stick and say, oh, I did that. I ended up in a 12-step program is where I started. It not, wasn't by choice. It's just where I landed. Um, I, got, I got lucky. I, I landed in, I, I was in a men's group led by a woman around sexual shame who liked men. And so that was good for me. I tried some other men's groups that I, I just never connected or resonated with. A core piece I would recommend, whether you're looking for a coach, a therapist, a men's group, is find somebody who leads it, who's actually done their own work. You, you mentioned embodiment quite a bit. Somebody who's actually gone out, worked on their own stuff. You know, I, I became uh, a therapist. I, I got my PhD in marriage and family therapy at 29 years old. Started, you know, a few years later, started doing, you know, trying to do real therapy. I'd never been to therapy. And, you know, it wasn't till I got into therapy and men's groups and started working on my own toxic shame and my own anxieties and my own patterns that I could actually really help people. So, you know, um, it doesn't hurt to check out, you know, ask the person, what's your journey? You know, where, where have you worked on yourself? And then just see, do you connect with them? That's, that's usually a good place. Do you connect? So go, go find a coach, therapist, men's group, 12 step group, something where you get to go start revealing you, releasing toxic shame. Start being honest. Nice guys think they're honest. We're anything but honest. I remember pretty early in my process, I, I realized almost everything I told my then wife was whatever won't rock the boat. So I, I told her, I'm going to work on being honest. Whenever I catch myself making up a story to tell you, I'm going to come tell you. I was going to lie to you. Here's the lie I was going to tell you. Here's the whole truth. So I started doing that. And actually, I used to tell her her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did. And every the funny thing was, when I actually just started telling her the truth about shit, she'd go, okay, thanks for telling me that. I'm glad you didn't lie to me. And, you know, whoa, that's different. You know, when I was trying to get her not to overreact, she did. When I just told her the truth, yeah, okay, don't lie to me. That was it. So work on being honest. And again, we need safe people usually to do that. Uh, work on making your needs a priority. Start asking yourself, what do I want? What's important to me? You know, am I, uh, do I, do I need to go to the gym? Do I need to go to the dentist? Uh, do I need to take some time to relax? Uh, do I need to rest my eyes? Do I need to go read a good book? Do I, you know, how do I get my needs met and how do I let people help me get my needs met? And how do I surround myself with people who want to help me get my needs met? Uh, start working on boundaries. That's, that's a big one for nice guys is, well, nobody grows into adulthood knowing how to set boundaries because nobody teaches children how to set boundaries. Um, because in, in the real world, the big people get to do whatever they want to the little people. And because we were all little people, we never learned. You could say, no, stop that. I'm going to remove myself now. So learn about boundaries. I was in my thirties in my second marriage with a PhD before I'd ever even heard of boundaries. A therapist I went to taught me about them. Uh, so start working on boundaries. And then I just, I think the one other piece I'll throw out there that I think is just so fundamental, especially for guys, for nice guys, go connect with men. Go build a tribe of men. I've had to do that a few times in my life. About seven years ago when I got married down here in Mexico, um, not yet fluent Spanish. My wife only speaks Spanish. And I'm living at here, working at home. I, I had no guys in my life. 
And I went seeking and found a men's program and joined it. And now if you looked at my text messaging, my calendars, my email, I'm on Zoom. I'm messaging with buddies all the friggin' time. And it just, it makes everything about my world better. I'm, I'm more on point with, with my work. My relationship improved. I'm in better health. I'm happier. So build a connection with men. So there, there's about five things that are a pretty good start. Dr. Robert Glover, ladies and gentlemen. Robert, I adore your work. I think it's very much needed. It's so fascinating that it's been around for quite a while, you know, and, and yet this single thread of guys being overly pliable, of resenting despite the fact that they're playing the game correctly, they think that they're doing all the rest of it. Is uh, it's so fascinating, and I, I've today's been phenomenal. Where should people go? They want to keep up to date with your work. You've got go to, on the internet. Yeah, drglover.com. You know, good place to start out. Uh, it's we're in, the, we're in the process of rebuilding it, but you, you can go find good stuff. Uh, integrationnation.net, my new men's program. Uh, my co-author said, be sure and mention the big stick. <laughs> this uh go find the big stick tony endelman is a certified coach I, I i asked him a few years ago tony what do you think about digging into everything i've ever created and trying to put it in one book and he goes yeah i'm up for that <laughs> i go okay and he did he did a beautiful job so um drglover.com integrationnation.net big stick hell yeah robert i appreciate you thank you very much for chris this was a blast thank you so much fun <laughs>